Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, April 12th, 2012. Okay, so we are doing a light edition this week, and it's today. I can't remember the last time I did it on a Thursday. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. So uh, I know that some of you all out there have uh, been attending, you've had the privilege of attending the uh, Together for the Gospel Conference. Well, once again, I wasn't able to attend this year. It has nothing to do with finances. I mean, Louisville is not that far away. It's a couple-hour drive. It's, it has everything to do with my schedule. And so maybe one of these years I'll be able to make it to the Together for the Gospel Conference. But uh, this week, Albert Muller at the Together for the Gospel Conference delivered a very good message that I think is appropriate for us to play this week, especially since uh, during our sermon reviews all this week, we're doing good sermon reviews. And the name of the lecture that he delivered is called The Power of the Articulated Gospel. Um, This is, in the broader scheme of things, this is a, a, a discussion of the means of grace, the means by which God regenerates people. Clearly, uh, you know, the primary means being the preached word, the uh, the correctly articulated doctrine of the biblical gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And Dr. Muller does a fine job with this uh, particular topic. And what's going to happen is, is that I'm going to do something. I, I can't remember the last time I've done this with Dr. Muller. I'm actually going to pause somewhere during the lecture and take issue with something that he says. And so, uh, yeah, it's um, kind of a finer point, but I'm not trying to be nitpicky. So uh, as you can tell, I think this is a great lecture. And at the same time, I've got a little asterisk that I'm putting here at the beginning of it. There's something he says, and he kind of reiterates a similar point twice because of what he's quoting that I that I take issue with. And so you'll see what I'm saying. You, you're you going to benefit greatly from the lecture, that being ca- the case with everybody, including Dr. Moeller, myself, anybody. You always listen with discernment. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Albert Muller's uh, lecture entitled The Power of the Articulated Gospel. Here we go. The theme of our meeting is the underestimated gospel. And it is a carefully chosen theme. 
We are together for the gospel, but we want to be certain that we are together for the authentic gospel, the only gospel that saves, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is revealed in the, the scriptures. We want to make certain that we are accountable to that gospel. We do not want to underestimate it or to use a word now coined by our former president, George W. Bush. We do not want to misunderestimate the gospel. We want all of it, and we need all of it. In our 2006 Affirmations and Denials, we began by saying we are brothers in Christ united in one great cause, to stand together for the gospel. We are convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been misrepresented, misunderstood, and marginalized in many churches and among many who claim the name of Christ. Compromise of the gospel has led to the preaching of false gospels, the seduction of many minds and movements, and the weakening of the church's gospel witness. In other words, when we first started coming together, we came together to be in the gospel. And that means we have to know what the gospel is, and that means we have to be candid about what the gospel is not. We are surrounded by misunderstandings of the gospels, misconstruals of the gospels, and things that just fall short of the gospel. I will admit to you something else. I, uh, I miss Calvin and Hobbes. I still have the theologian and uh, I still have reference to the philosopher, but you know who I mean and if you don't, I have pity on you. <laughs> I miss the far side. We're not left with anything quite like those two anymore and so my daily mirth from the newspaper is not nearly as mirthy as it was before. And I I'm not a big fan of Dilbert. But one day someone gave me a cartoon, a Dilbert cartoon, that has just struck in my mind. Dilbert, by the way, has a, a dog, amazingly enough, named Dogbert. <laughs> and one day Dogbert came to Dilbert and said, I now understand the universe. I want to explain to you the mystery of the universe. And thus he shared his conclusions. What makes this, this cartoon so meaningful to me is what Dilbert said in response. Dilbert, looking at the dog, says, that came so dangerously close to being interesting. <laughs> and I know exactly what that's like because, I, and, and fiendishly, that comes up in my mind at all the wrong times. I, I can be in conversation with someone and I'm thinking that's coming just dangerously close to being interesting. And I, I, I've, I've heard sermons that I thought came dangerously close to having a point. Some, to tragic, had came dangerously close to actually getting it right. Every once in a while, a preacher will read a text, and that really encourages you. And even in the course of the next, say, I don't know, 45 minutes, he comes dangerously close to something in the text. But, you know, the haunting fear we have is that we will fall short. That the problem is not what we hear, but what others hear in us. That we will come dangerously close to preaching the gospel. That's another reason why we need to be together like this. Why we, we need to gather in order to hear ourselves talk about the gospel. To make certain that we are saying the right things about the gospel. That we are what... We're fulfilling what Paul said to Timothy when he said, Maintain that pattern of sound words. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has enemies. But sometimes it is underestimated even by its friends. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. 
We're here because we know this. We're here because we believe this. We are here in the power of the gospel because we have known and we now know the power of the gospel. We preach the gospel because we know it's power to save, because Christ saves. We want to be a gospel people leading gospel churches and a great global gospel movement to see the renown of Jesus and his salvation known to every tribe and people and nation. We want to live gospel lives filled with gospel evidences and gracious signs of the gospel. We want to know the joy of the gospel and bear the fruit of the gospel and see gospel people set loose in the world. But we really need to consider that we can underestimate the gospel even as we love it, even as we think we love it, even as we say that we love it. And then there are very real issues of urgent debate. Within the affirmations and denials that we adopted back in 2006, we said this, we affirm that salvation is all of grace and that the gospel is revealed to us in doctrines that most faithfully exalt God's sovereign purpose to save sinners and in his determination to save his redeemed people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to his glory alone. We deny that any teaching, theological system, or means of presenting the gospel that denies the centrality of God's grace as his gift of unmerited favor to sinners in Christ can be considered true doctrine. We affirm that the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's means of bringing salvation to his people, that sinners are commanded to believe this gospel, and that the church is commissioned to preach and to teach the gospel to all nations. We deny that evangelism can be reduced to any program, technique, or marketing approach. We further deny that salvation can be separated from repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We affirm that salvation comes to those who truly believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We deny that there is salvation in any other name or that saving faith can take any form other than conscious belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving acts. The issues continue. The issues that we sought to address in those affirmations and denials in the year 2006, all of them continue. Not one of them has gone away, but to them are added yet new complexities and, and new compromises, new temptations. The issues are reframed. The question remains, are we really preaching and obeying the whole gospel? We know that what is called evangelicalism includes those who see the gospel as nothing more than a transaction or decision that leads to their eternal salvation with no reference to the lordship of Christ and the command to be his faithful disciple. We know that many churches would say that they love the gospel, but they're filled with people who do not look like gospel people and seem unaware or unconcerned about that fact. Over a generation ago, Carl Henry wrote a book, the title of which makes clear the problem, a plea for evangelical demonstration. It's a call that is rightly being heard anew in a new generation, a generation that will not be satisfied until our churches begin to look more like gospel people. This is real and is right and it's necessary. But first, the gospel has to be heard. And for it to be heard, it has to be articulated. And we dare not underestimate the power of the articulated gospel. Turn with me, please, to the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans Chapter 10, we'll read from verse 5 through verse 17. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul's great apostolic concern here is the refusal of his kinsmen to believe in Christ and be saved. In the context of the letter to the Romans, it is clear that at this point, the apostle Paul is writing about the relationship between the Jewish people, the people of the old covenant, and, and believers, the redeemed, and in, in the new covenant. He clearly, as a Jew, writing as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to a congregation that is made up of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who come from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, he makes clear the priority of God's covenant people and of the promises that were made to Israel, but he makes the centrality of Christ clear and the universality of the God gospel clear. He makes the universality of our human need clear in terms of our, our depravity, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. He demonstrates justification by faith as having been revealed not only in the New Testament, but in the old as Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of his faith, on because of his faith. Later, we know it's on the basis of what Christ has done for him. We read about how Christ's atonement then fully satisfies the wrath and the righteousness of God. We understand how God set forth Christ as a propitiation in his blood such that he is now demonstrated to be, that is the father, both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And then there are those precious therefores in the book of Romans. There's no condemnation that comes to us. And, and now we come to Romans and chapter 10, and we discover here that the apostle Paul is riding fast on the heels, no surprise here, of Romans chapter 9. A chapter which quintessentially displays the sovereignty of God. What we find here in chapter 10 is what Charles Spurgeon will later call the whole machinery of salvation. It's all here. Several things we should see. Number one, the word is brought near. In Revelation, the promise of the prophets in the Torah and every particle of scripture, ultimately in Christ who came near to us in his incarnation, tabernacled with us. And then now in the apostolic preaching of the gospel, the word is brought near to us. How is it that any one of us came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as savior? How did any one of us have our sins forgiven? How did any one of us come to faith in Christ, it is because the word was brought near to us. As the writer of the book of Hebrews says, long ago and in many and various ways, God spoke, but in these last days, he has now spoken to us in his son. But the word has to be brought near to us. Now note the text. The apostle is very clear about how the word is brought near to us. First of all, it was brought near to Israel. This is, of course, a clear reference to the closing chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses reminds the children of Israel that they did not go to find the Torah. The Torah was given to them. 
just as they were God's elect people and, and God had chosen them from among the nations, one of the reasons why they knew that God had chosen them is because of what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived? No, it was brought near to us. And now it is near to us. And life is in obedience and death is in disobedience. The Apostle Paul here writes to Jews who now know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because the gospel of Christ was brought near to them. He's writing to Gentiles who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior because the word of the gospel was brought near to them. It's one of the most precious privileges of the Christian life. The word having been brought near to us, it is now our sacred responsibility to bring the word near to others. It's a beautiful metaphor of evangelism, of preaching. It is bringing the word of God near. For our salvation, it was brought near to us in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his saving acts. It is now brought near to sinners through the preaching of the gospel. The word is brought near, and it is a word that is words. Proximity to the gospel is not the point. The hearing of the gospel is the point, and it is by the means of preaching that it is brought near. That's where the proximity is given, but the proximity requires articulation. If the one who knows the gospel and knows Christ is, is close to one who does not know Christ but never articulates the gospel, then there is no salvation. It's brought near, and it's brought near in verbal form. It is, in verse 8, the word of faith that we proclaim. It is a word of faith. It, it is a, a word that leads to faith. It requires the articulation of the saving acts of Christ, the articulation of the promise of the gospel. It requires all of this so that the one who hears it may believe, and believing may confess, and believing and confessing may be saved. Our task is to bring the word near to others, even as it was brought near to us. The Apostle Paul in his apostolic ministry was all about bringing the word near. He commissioned preachers who would then take the word and preach it in order to bring it near. His vision was for Christians, not just for preachers, but Christians to be evangelists, agents of bringing the word near, the saving word of the gospel, the word of faith that we proclaim. The second thing we need to see in this text is the power of the gospel to save. This is where we rightly refer to the well-meant offer of the gospel. We believe on the basis of the inerrant and infallible word of God, on the basis of the apostolic teaching found here quintessentially in Romans chapter 10, that we are to preach the gospel to all persons everywhere in the firm and unshakable belief that if they believe and confess, they will be saved. Notice how clear the apostle is about this. Look especially at those central verses, verses 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no footnote. There is no asterisk. There is no conditionality. This is not a hypothetical statement about the power of the gospel. It is an actual biblical apostolic revealed and errant and fallible promise that if sinners believe and confess, they will be saved. That's the well-meant offer of the gospel. We don't present the gospel with one hand behind our back. This might be for you or it might not be for you. We don't find refuge in the sovereignty of God in order to say we don't have to preach the gospel to all persons because the very apostle who gave us the quintessential teaching in Romans chapter 9 is here giving us an unmistakable command and, and an unmistakable reference and witness to the power of the gospel to save all who believe in Romans chapter 10. The same gospel is preached. The same Paul who in chapters 8 through 9 had written so clearly about our salvation in terms of God's absolute sovereignty, foreknowledge, predestination, calling and election, leading to justification and glorification. The same Paul who affirmed that God declares that he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. The same Paul who wrote that our election depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, here affirms without qualification that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How do we know the elect? It is because they believe and they confess and they are saved. And that requires the means of the preaching of the gospel. Gospel people believe this. We live this. We teach this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The content to that is in verse 9. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It means, as Paul here says so clearly, that we confess with the lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in the heart that God has raised him from the dead. Everyone, in verse 11 we read, who believes in him will not be put to shame. Thus, we are to be promiscuous and undiscriminating in our preaching of the gospel. This is where we find our, our refuge and our encouragement in Jesus' parable of the sower of the soils. The sower of the seed and the parable of the soils. What do we do? We are to share the seed, to sow the seed. We do so indiscriminately. We are not in the soil sampling business. We're not in the soil management business. We are in the sowing business and we sow and the Lord reaps the sowing of the gospel and we are told that that harvest will be so magnificent that the sowing of the seed of the gospel will produce eventually believers from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. We'd be absolutely incompetent at the soil management business. Just think about the testimonies that began the conference so powerfully. We're not good at strategically thinking how we can sow the seed. And God bless those evangelist preachers and teachers and believers who just keep at it, sowing and sowing and sowing when they don't even get to see any harvest because they're not confident in their power to witness. They are confident in the power of the gospel to save. Central to this is our understanding of the necessity of personal confession, evidence of personal faith and belief that produces, of course, repentance. The centrality of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ are indeed the saving acts of God that are declared in the gospel. We believe that election to salvation and the transforming power of the gospel become evident in faith and repentance and in confession. In verse 12, we have the very important reminder that there is no distinction 
This is a revolutionary statement. Paul is writing to a church that is obviously experiencing division between those who have a Jewish and a Gentile background. And the apostle Paul makes very clear that at the cross, there is no distinction. In terms of our need for a savior and the savior's provision, there is no distinction. There's no distinction. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul writes as he begins this letter to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. I am not ashamed, he says, of the power of the gospel because of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of the gospel unto salvation to all believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's all of us. That's how any of us and each of us got here. That explains why we are saved in the mystery of of the the sovereign purposes of God by his sheer grace and mercy alone. The word was brought near to us and we were called, we were made alive, we were regenerated, we we, we were able to believe. We, We then believed what we otherwise would never have been able to believe. And we believed it in such a way that we grasped hold of it knowing that it's the sole provision of our need. We came to know our need and we came to know God's response and provision for us in Christ. And then we came to know of our necessary response in faith and repentance, confession, and belief to all those in Rome who are called by God and called to be saints. That can be expanded everywhere the church is found. To all those in the world who are loved by God and called to be saints. Third, we see in this text the necessity of articulating the gospel. It is not brought near without words. Our ministry is multidimensional, multiphasic, but it is essentially, most importantly, verbal. We're called as preachers to preach. The gospel requires words in order to be heard, in order to be received. It requires words even in order to be rejected. But the power of the gospel is that taking the shape of the words that rightly witness to the saving acts of Christ and to the promise of God in Christ that sinners believe and are saved. These days, it's becoming increasingly popular to quote Francis of Assisi as saying, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Little historical footnote here. This was probably not said by Francis of Assisi. There's no reference to these words in this form or anything quite like this form until about 200 years after Francis of Assisi had died. Nonetheless, it sounds like Francis. So, having the historical footnote there so that I can go home in academic peace, I will then state that it does sound like Francis. And it also sounds like all those who would like to believe that we can bring the gospel near just by being there. Or we we can bring the gospel near just by being kind or being just, being righteous, and being loving. But the reality is, even as we are called to be all of those things, and they are signs of the gospel, the gospel requires articulation. It it requires words. When, When you say, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary, whatever you're doing, when you're not using words, you're not preaching the gospel. You may be giving evidence of the gospel. You may be even 
in a way giving witness to the power of the gospel. But for salvation to take place, the gospel has to be articulated, it has to be preached, it has to be told, it has to be taught, it has to be explained. And the New Testament is replete with verbs that make very clear the verbal nature of the gospel and of the gospel ministry. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Well, there's a certain enticing ring of authenticity to that. Because we certainly don't want to turn it on its head. We certainly don't want to suggest that Christians should be satisfied with a verbal witness of the gospel that is not backed up with the evidences and signs of the gospel. We shouldn't expect that we will have credibility in preaching the gospel if we are quite satisfied not to look like gospel people. We can and must show evidence of the gospel by our actions and by our deeds. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ must demonstrate the gospel, but we cannot preach the gospel without words. We really can't do much of importance without words. Not only is evangelism and, and the preaching of the gospel dependent upon words, most of what we do that is most important in life is dependent upon words. Just think about any major experience, any formative experience of your life, and imagine how you can communicate that to someone without words. Just think about a proposal in marriage. You might be able to insinuate this without words, but let me just give you single men a suggestion. Use words, okay? Yes. The fact is that we are, at least in part, made in God's image as those who use words. We are the creature made in the image of God. God is a speaking God. And we are a speaking people. We communicate on the basis of words. Those words are essential to our understanding of who we are, our understanding of what life means, and certainly our understanding of the gospel. Walter Ong, who in the 20th century was one of the great scholars of orality, points out that, that virtually all language originates in speech. Only later does it take written form. It originates in speech. And there's a lot of testimony to that in the scripture as well. But this speech is, is verbal in a way that, he says, distinguishes human beings from any other creature. And, and quite frankly, as he makes clear, meaning, it turns out, requires orality. It requires the, the expression of words. Dwayne Litvin, the former president of Wheaton College, in a new book he has coming out in just a few weeks, writes about the priority of the word over the limitations of gesture. Now, to be human is also to have certain gestures. You have linguists like Noam Chomsky and others who say that to be human is to have these certain embedded language and linguistic units in us. And, and there are others who say that we have basic semaphores and, and gestures that are essential to what it means to be human. But it turns out that gestures have severe limitations. Those who study such things, and there are, there are people that do PhD work and devote their lives to the study of gestures. They're called husbands. No, that's not it, but nonetheless... <laughs> There are, there are scholars who, who, who spend an entire lifetime studying gestures. And, and they've come to the conclusion that gestures can be very effective in two ways. First of all, in the basic communication of affirmation or denial. In other words, we could kind of put the affirmations and denials of our, of our statement. We could put that into kind of a, well, semaphore. 
but it would require the words. We just have to kind of do the yay or nay with it. But it turns out that in virtually every, every culture, there's a basic gesture for yes and a basic gesture for no. The second thing the scholars of gesture tell us is that gestures are, are fairly adept at communicating emotion, emotional states. But beyond that, gestures don't do much. And furthermore, it turns out that gestures can get very, very confusing. Yes and no maybe aren't as clear as they are thought to be. Mary's pastor in college once was having dinner at her house, and he told the story. He pastor of a very large church, and he was preaching in the middle of the service. Uh, a man had a heart attack. Well, fortunately, it was a large church. There were several physicians, and the physicians attended to him, and they, they carried him back into the, the, the entrance to the church, and they, they closed the door. And, of course, everyone is, is a bit traumatized. They, they paused and had prayer for this man, knowing that he was in some kind of medical emergency. And, and this is a big church, and the pastor is, is getting ready to preach, and behind him is arrayed as this full, magnificent choir. And one of the doctors who had been attending the man came back in the back of, of the sanctuary where everyone in the choir loft and everyone on the platform could see him. And he looked to the pastor and gave him a signal. He said, <laughs> the pastor read that to mean, don't worry, it was indigestion, he's fine. Okay, now, <laughs> I'm not interrupting to uh, critique here. Does, the, you can't see this. So the signal looks like a guy making the safe thing you know like in in baseball the umpire goes safe so he's making a, a a movement that looks like it's safe but he's shaking his head no at the same time so you got the guy shaking his head no at the same time while making the safe signal that's what apparently it looked like the choir read that to mean he's gone <laughs> it was time for the preacher to preach he got up and preached the full sermon the full entire exposition that he had on his heart and the product of his study. And they came to the end of the service and he went to his car and there he met his wife who was in the choir. He said, we got in the car and I knew, didn't take a gesture, I knew, I knew that something was wrong. And he said, I turned to my wife and I said, sweetheart, what's wrong? And she says, you are the most arrogant, self-centered, job-focused man on the planet. And he said, what did I do? She said, well, Dr. So-and-so came in the back of the church and told you that a member of your church had just died in the service of a heart attack, and you went on without skipping a beat. And he said, wait a minute, you mean that meant he was dead? <laughs> and she said, well, what else could that mean? And he said, well, I thought it meant we're fine. And he said, so I immediately ran into the church and found the doctor, and I said, what did this mean? He said, it meant what, of course you thought it meant. He's fine. And he said, well, next time, this isn't enough. <laughs> because I have, I have an entire choir who thinks that that meant he was dead. He said, oh, no, I'd come up with something different for that. Here is the indictment. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. So, we're lost without words. The gospel requires 
words. We have in our midst those who are hearing the words of the scripture and the words of this message by means of American Sign Language. It is not mere gesture. It is the communication of words. And we are saved as we hear the pattern of right words and believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work within you believers. It requires words. You receive the word of God. How did they receive it? Which you heard from us. And then what happened? You received it. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. What a beautiful summary of evangelism and of the preaching of the gospel. We use the only words that are available to us, that is human words. But when those human words rightly represent and present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not heard as merely human words. They're heard as the word of God, which is at work within believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, notice the words, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Least of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Notice this, is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Those so's are so important. So we preach, and so you believed. Without the preaching, there is no believing. In terms of our assignment and the gospel's promise, Paul's logic is airtight. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The hearing requires the telling. The telling requires words. Faith comes by hearing. It doesn't come by any other means. Now, we're not here just talking about the auditory experience because it's not only the outward call of the gospel, which is our responsibility. We know that salvation comes to those who also receive that inward call, the inward call of the Spirit, the effectual calling. We know that that is requisite, but we also know that effectual calling it is a part of the commandment that we issue the external call. We understand exactly what Martin Luther said to his students when he said to them, our responsibility, your responsibility, is to get the word from your lips to their ears. Only the Holy Spirit can get the word from their ears to their hearts. But God has chosen in his sovereignty 
That, as Spurgeon said, the whole machinery of the gospel requires the articulation with words of the gospel. This is not something that happened to the gospel. This is not something that entraps the gospel. Our sovereign God did not present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ only to be dissatisfied and frustrated that it has to be communicated in words. He intended it so to be communicated. He demonstrates the power of the gospel in the fact that words, even human words, take on the saving authority of his own word as the word of faith produces faith and belief and confession. We are then to tell, to teach, to preach. We're also to contend and we are to explain and we are not to be ashamed nor reluctant to understand that we are also to persuade. We can take away the threat of this problem if we can find refuge in some... Now, this is where I'll begin to offer a correction and maybe a critique, maybe a different point of view. And that is this, is he's going to use this persuade language several different times from here to the end of the lecture. And here's my concern, is that conversion is not persuasion. Conversion is the raising to life of a dead sinner. Persuasion is the talk of Pelagianism, and that is not what the Christian project is about. It's not about persuasion. So i got to take issue with that word and i think rightly so because persuasion is the t basically the talk of pelagianism we're to proclaim and god raises regenerates and causes rebirth so that's where i offer the corrective and maybe he doesn't have pelagianism in mind but i i always want to be careful with words that we don't give a false impression that the job of evangelist is persuasion the job of, a va of an evangelist is really, in a sense, spiritual resurrection. And that can't occur via persuasion. So you understand what I'm saying? That So that's where I stick my stake down there and I go, mm, I agree with everything you said so far to a point. The, here I got to say, mm, is that really the right verb, persuasion? And maybe his Southern Baptist roots are showing here, but... Dr. Muller is a monergist. He's not a synergist. So I find it very interesting that he's using that word. We continue. Universalism or inclusivism, some denial of hell or judgment, if we can believe in anonymous Christians or the like, but we cannot. I am unapologetically a conversionist. Paul clearly believes that the transformation of the gospel brings us from one state and status to another that is radically different. Our Savior told Nicodemus, you must be born again, nothing less will do. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, we read the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Do not marvel, he said to Nicodemus, that I told you, you must be born again. And then, of course, comes that text, the text that we heard preached, led to the conversion of one who just bore witness, John 3.16. The promise is that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. How will they believe if they never heard? You put that together with Romans chapter 10 and you come to understand the unbreakable logic of Paul's argument. How do we expect that anyone will be saved if they do not hear? And how are they going to hear if the gospel is never proclaimed?
And how will the preaching take place if no one is sent? Now, in its context, that passage is not first and foremost about commissioning missionaries, but it is a natural place to go because that is the logic of the mechanism of salvation, God's plan of how the gospel is to be preached and how sinners are to be reached and how the name of Jesus is to be made famous among the nations. How will they believe if they never hear? How will they hear without a preacher? When faithful, we've always known this. Evangelicals, well, we named ourselves after this. We're supposed to be the gospel people. We named ourselves as those who believe in the gospel. We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe in the authority of the gospel. We believe in the life-transforming power of the gospel. We believe in the articulation of the gospel. And when we've been at our best and most faithful, we've always said this to one another. Only in fairly recent years do we hear such things as, stop talking and show me the gospel. But we need to show the gospel. What we're really showing is the power and effect of the gospel. It takes words to articulate the gospel, that the gospel can be heard and believed. In 1966, in a very important congress of evangelicals, the Berlin World Congress on Evangelism, a statement, a definition of evangelism was adopted that I think quintessentially expresses this powerfully and simply and straightforwardly. The congress adopted a statement that said, and I quote, evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ, the only redeemer of men, according to the scriptures, with the purpose of persuading condemned and lost sinners to put their faith and trust in God. And see, I take issue with the verb persuade. I don't think that's, I, hmm, it just smells of Pelagianism to me. By receiving and accepting Christ as Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit and to serve Christ as Lord in every calling of his life and fellowship of his church, looking toward the day of his coming in glory. Now that is what evangelism is. That, that definition is saturated with Scripture. It's consistent with Scripture. More could be said, but I dare say nothing less can be said. And interestingly enough, that 1966 statement was adopted by evangelicals in order to respond to a 1918 statement that had been adopted by the World Council of Churches as these evangelicals gathered and said the World Council of Churches wasn't saying enough. The statement of 1918 came dangerously close to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it wasn't the gospel. The gospel requires exclusivity, and the gospel requires confession. In the preparation for the first Lausanne Congress in 1974, John Stott said this, evangelism then is sharing this gospel with others. The good news is Jesus, and the good news about Jesus that we announce is that he died for our sins and was raised from death by the Father according to the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. And that on the basis of his death and resurrection, he offers forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit to all those who repent, believe, and are baptized. The covenant itself adopted at that Congress in 1974, a Congress that took as its theme the whole gospel for the whole world, stated this, Evangelism itself is the proclamation of the historical biblical Christ as Savior and Lord with a view to persuading people to come to him personally and so be reconciled to God. Most recently in Cape Town in 2010, in what is known as the Cape Town Commitment, 
Those who were gathered there affirmed the gospel is not a concept that needs fresh ideas, but a story that needs fresh telling. It has to be told. It requires words. I agree with Christopher Wright when he summarizes the gospel in six points. The gospel is, first, a Christ-centered story to be told. Second, a hope-filled message to be proclaimed. Third, a revealed truth to be defended. Fourth, a new status to be received. Fifth, a transformed life to be lived. And sixth, a divine power to be celebrated. Notice that the first three all require words. In order to get to the demonstration of the power of the gospel in his points four and five and six, you first have to have a Christ-centered story to be told, a hope-filled message to be proclaimed, and a revealed truth to be defended. If we are left without words, we cannot fulfill the commission and command of Christ, for we cannot articulate the gospel without words. We live in a world confused and enticed by false gods and false gospels. The only means of reaching people with the gospel of Christ, the gospel that saves, is the articulation of that saving message in words. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith without works is dead. We know this is true. We long to see more evidence of the gospel in our churches and in our lives. I certainly long to see more of the fruit of the gospel in my own life. I know that our faith is to be demonstrated and not merely declared. And together we must learn to be more faithful in demonstration that the world may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. But salvation will not come until the gospel is preached, until it is articulated, complete with the account of our need, God's provision, in our response. We must use words to tell the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection from the dead. We must use words to contend for this gospel and to distinguish it from all false gospels. As John Piper has rightly said, we are the people that have to be willing to die for sentences. And I'll press it further to say we have to be willing to die for words. And we cannot preach or teach nor tell the gospel without words. The pattern of right words reminds us of our responsibility to get the gospel right. We are here because we are to live the gospel and we want never to underestimate its power. We're here because among the many and varied ways we do not want to underestimate the gospel. We never want to underestimate the power of the articulated gospel. Ask yourself this question. How is it that you came to believe? How is it that the gospel came to you? We can think of, of various ways in which the providence of God, who is so rich in mercy towards us, is demonstrated in how the word was brought near to us. We can think of a preacher, and, and amazingly enough, a preacher that sometimes is simply seen and heard by means of the internet or, or the television or the radio. Sometimes we are surprised to hear that the gospel articulated even in, by means of those technologies saves. We should not be. Sometimes it is someone in a hotel room who in a moment of desperation opens a drawer and simply finds a Gideon's Bible and opens the Bible and the convicting power of the word 
leads to faith and repentance. Sometimes it is one of those completely unexpected, unpredictable, providential moments when you're sitting next to someone and you have the opportunity to give an answer for the hope that is in you. And the individual to whom you're speaking says, I believe. And you say, you do? (laughs) How is it we can be surprised? We heard those testimonies, three different testimonies, maybe, maybe actually just one testimony, all the same, regardless of whether we are raised by Christian parents or Christian home, the word having been brought near to us by means of our childhood and all the wonderful ministry of the church and the, the, the means of grace that are, that are there still at some point We know the gospel had to be heard. There were words that somehow produced belief in us by the mysterious saving purpose of God. When you get up to preach, your absolute confidence is that insofar as your words are that pattern of sound words, insofar as they are they are scriptural, insofar as they are true, insofar as they are gospel-centered, insofar as they present the saving acts of God for us in Christ and call sinners to believe and to repent and to confess, you have this confidence. That is the means whereby God redeems and saves in terms of bringing persons to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that they may be forgiven their sins and have the gift of life everlasting. It is the gospel means of a gracious God and he has desired from the foundation of the world before the world ever took form that his gospel would be proclaimed to the nations by his redeemed people who use words. So use them. Use the right ones. Never underestimate the power of the articulated gospel. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that the gospel was articulated to us. I am so unspeakably thankful that the word, the gospel, was articulated to me. Father, we pray that we will devote our lives to the teaching and preaching of the gospel. With a sight to your glory in the gospel being called out, the, the gospel people being called out from all the nations, your redeemed being called out from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Father, may we be faithful in our exposition. May we be faithful in our conversation. May we be faithful in our talk, faithful in our testimony, and faithful in our proclamation. And Father, may we never lose sight to the power of the articulated gospel. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. Amen. Amen. Fine lecture. Great points. Yeah, yeah, I just want to quibble, not for the sake of quibbling, but for the sake of clarification. 
if we truly believe that it is God who generates, it is God who regenerates, it's God who causes to be born us to be born again. And Scripture in the apostle in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter one, make it clear: it is not of a human decision. Then is the evangelistic task really appropriately uh, conveyed in the verb persuade? I would say. No, but it's worth having a conversation about, and a biblical one at that. You know, I think Dr. Mueller had much good to say, and he was absolutely right. We've got to convey the gospel, preach the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.